Hello and welcome to Dress Fancy, the podcast about fashion, fantasy and fancy dress. I'm Lucy Clayton and I'm here with cultural historian Dr Benjamin Wilde. This series explores a super specific subject that we love very much. It's fair to say we're both fascinated by the concept of costume as a slice of fashion history, not in film or performance, but personal costume in a very intimate sense. This is an area that's not heavily explored by academics or fashion historians, which is perhaps surprising given the prevalence of dressing up in culture generally. From parties to parades to protests, it seems we need very little encouragement to don a disguise or a statement or use costume to express our true selves. In previous episodes, we visited lavish costume balls, followed the route of protest marches, and eavesdropped on some pretty tasteless interpretations of themes. But today, we're talking about something quite unexpected. We are talking about costume in a time of conflict. Now, on the face of it, fancy dress and fighting might seem completely incompatible. If one is about humour and creativity, as we've sort of touched upon in previous episodes, the other, war, is most definitely about horror and killing. The apparent lack of connection between fancy dress creativity and conflict is perhaps confirmed by a poster that the British government produced during the First World War, which proclaimed, to dress extravagantly in wartime is worse than bad form. It is unpatriotic. And yet, despite this, I think we can see, and as we'll explore in this episode, that fancy dress has often thrived during periods of national military crisis, both on the home front, but also on the fighting front. And I think this picks up on a theme that we mentioned in episode one, when we're conjuring with the idea of world building. So world building is this idea of creating a psychological and physical space, almost, I suppose, a psychological solve that can insulate people or in some ways anaesthetize them from troubling reality. So it's a concept that is really, I think, focused on this idea of empowering people. And generally then, fancy dress at wartime, building on this idea of of world building, manifests itself, I think, in two broad categories. And we're generalising here, but I I think this holds. In the first instance, we're talking about the trivialisation of conflict. So we're making the hard realities of war, the deprivations on the home front, obviously the horrors at the fighting front, manageable by ridiculing Mm -hmm. what is going on. The second area, I think, is the use of world building through fancy dress costume to promote a sense of group identity. We see this, I think, a lot more at the fighting front, where you have groups of soldiers dressing up really to galvanise morale. And this mm-hmm. is also, I think, about the costume creation, the effort that goes into that. Promoting it's group this. activity exactly from the that. beginning to yeah. the end, of course. And in that, you're distracted. I mean, interestingly, from a, I think, officer's or commander's point of view, by working together, you're surreptitiously demonstrating a lot of the skills and qualities that you'll need to perform at the fighting front. But for the individual soldiers or sailors, they're doing something that is distracting them from the reality. We also, I suppose, see this idea of promotion of group identity on the home front. It's interesting, particularly during the First World War, but also during the Second, that costume balls are held to raise money for the fighting front or to raise money for soldiers that have been injured in the conflict. 
So I think what this shows is that whilst at face value, fancy dress and conflict really are odd bedfellows and, and don't have anything in common, actually quite the reverse. And I think as we've seen in previous episodes, particularly perhaps episode one, it reinforces for me, I think, this idea that fancy dress can really be adept at conveying strong and really quite serious messages. And I think just to, to get the ball rolling, really, with this first idea of fancy dress to trivialise conflict, we have this really quite delightful letter that a lady called Elsie Bauman wrote to her mother. This is in the collection of the Women's Library of the um, LSE, so the London School of Economics. It was a letter that was written during the First World War, dated Thursday, September the 7th, 1916. And I think this is a really important time. It's during the period that the Battle of the Somme campaign is still ongoing. The Battle of the Somme campaign, one of the bloodiest of the First World War. And Elsie is writing in this letter a description of the fancy dress ball that she attends. We had such a topping fancy dress party last evening. It was really marvellous, considering no one had anything but their base kit. We borrowed right and left from the crew, and life belt sheets and pillowcases came in very handy. Also Serbian uniforms. I think the best were Kleben and a friend of hers who came as the Kaiser and Little Willie. Kleben was simply topping, exactly like the Crown Prince, except she had too much chin, hung all over with iron crosses and clutching her lute, a gilt clock, under one arm. Two of the transport came as Michelin tyres, walked round and round in rows of life belts, puffed out to an enormous size. They were too killing when they all collapsed, punctured by the sword of Napoleon. Dr Cheney. The latter had an almost sardonic expression. Dr. Corhall's appearance as St. Catherine with a halo and wheel, a ship life boy. A Fitzroy was a most amazing Prevali with a scarlet waistcoat and black skull and crossbones. Vera Holmes was a most realistic motor mechanic. And the real mechanic of the transport, a most amusing person named Edwards, came as an engine greaser. I do wish you could have seen it. I don't think I've ever laughed so much in my life, which is saying a good deal. I think it's amazing hearing the sort of joy and abandon yeah. in that letter. It's very unselfconscious. I think so. In that. And to think of the context in the moment of the horrors that were unfolding very early on in the, mm. in the war. So I, I don't think that's an example of someone sort of looking the other way, but in fact, just being kind of gung-ho and a very British sort of carrying on spirit. And in fact, she was a Titanic survivor, wasn't she? she? Was, so, yeah. I mean, you know, she's, yeah. she was made of stern stuff, I mm. feel. And, um, and, and is known, I think this is why her letters are preserved, because she is a suffragette, part of that movement. So I think this is also why her letters have been of course. Um, um, collected. So she this was is, in the thick of She it, was. Really. And, and I think this sort of indefatigable attitude, just get on with it, yeah. sort of comes through here. You know, yes, we've got a water fight, but actually we can overcome and the sort of sense of trivialising is a means by which that happens. And we have another example, don't we, where the situation is so awful mm. that the idea that sort of trivialising it, you can see how that would be necessary in a scenario where actually hope looks like a very flimsy thing. Talk to us about this example, this naval example that we have from World War Two. Yes. So as you said, World War Two, we have a series of interviews that were compiled by the Imperial War Museum 
of soldiers and sailors who fought in the 20th century conflicts. And these interviews are accessible. You can book up with the Imperial War Museum and, and engage with them. But here we've got the account of Charles Gordon Stringer, who served with the Royal Navy during the Second World War, as you said. And he is recalling this really harrowing journey that he takes at the very beginning of his commission from Liverpool to Mombasa. And to obviously make this journey, he is travelling in a convoy. And of course, during the Second World War, as indeed in the First World War previously, the Allied convoys are under the constant threat of attack from German U-boats or German submarines. And Stringer's example is no different to that. He describes the U-boat pack that's hunting them as an absolute brute. And he says that on the first night that they set out, so this is December 1942, nine ships in his convoy had been sunk. By the third night, Stringer estimated that over half of the convoy had been sunk. So he says, and this picks up, Lucy, on the point that you made about context being crucial, he says, the feeling amongst us all was one of inevitable doom, because when you're threatened, you're not frightened, you just accept it. You don't think about it. You're going to end up in the sea because you know you are. So you just accept it. And he also talks about the death, which must have been a particularly frightening moment, of his ship's captain, which he said was brought on by the shock of being in the bridge night and day. So the wow. captain's sort of nerves literally sort of giving out. God. But hope was not lost. And in the final stretch of the journey that Stringer makes, sailing from Montevideo to Durban in mid-Atlantic, he recalls this fancy dress ball. Uh, <laughs> so it's all really bad. What do you want to do? Dress up and have a party. I mean, I have to say, it does make sense if you're, you know, that description of the bleakness in his language around mm. being doomed and it being inexorable. I mean, why not go down partying? I think that's... But it does seem like an extraordinary response, doesn't it? It really does. And it also particularly, though, I think, as you said, that the key is to why there is this need to do it. Why are they so compelled mm. to forget their troubles in this way? Well, it, it's who they're dressing as. And that's revealed in this excerpt from his interview. On the way in mid-Atlantic, we had a fancy dress ball. And we had Hitler, Goering, Goebbels, and sundry other eminent people. And while we were having dinner, the captain dropped his spoon into his soup. He ran up on the bridge and he knew by a certain vibration that he'd felt that a torpedo had been fired at us in mid-Atlantic, all by ourselves. And it had been fired too close and it had just gone under the ship. It's quite boggling to imagine what would have happened if it hit us, because the German U-boat would have been faced with all these people in fancy dress, and you'd wonder what on earth was going on. <laughs> and indeed, you know, if the U-boat serviced, you'd have all of these people dressed as the sort of Nazi high command <laughs> greeting them, and... It's the yeah, most meta, confusing... It really is, yeah. I mean, yeah, how, how do you respond to that? I mean, that's classic British taking the piss, isn't it? I think it is. I think it really is. If we think about, you know, Trump visiting and mm. our wonderful mayor <laughs> has given permission for the baby-shaped this... Trump balloon, it's all in the same grand tradition, isn't it, of humour and disdain through exactly, humour. Exactly, yeah. And I think what's also interesting, I mean, it's, it's not alluded in his interview, but if you could identify a Hitler, a Goering, a Goebbels, 
there's a lot of thought that's gone into this. Yeah. So it's it's not as though that this is necessarily as spontaneous as he makes out. They'd clearly obviously planned this. Yeah. It was just unfortunate that Fancy Dress and Torpedo happened to not quite literally collide, but <laughs> happened on the same evening. <laughs> There's another brilliant example of in victory at the, the Bletchley Park. And they did a lot of brilliant things at Bletchley Park. I have this imagination of them sort of code breaking in the day and then partying or cabareting <laughs> all night. They had a, a very sort of lively theatre group and I, I think the sort of opportunities for costume at Bletchley Park were many and varied. <laughs> so they threw a VE Day ball and uh, there's an extract which I will read from a book by Joss Pearson which is called Cribs for Victory, the untold story of Bletchley Park's secret room and he describes this ball as after the German surrender, Bletchley Park put on a terrific VE party Fancy dress ball with oceans to drink, a top band, our own cabaret, special decor, soft lights and all the trimmings. It must have been one of the best end of war parties. I think it's one of the loveliest really descriptions of, of a party ever. I particularly like the soft lights. Uh, yeah, very atmospheric. Yes, quite right too. Everyone looks better in a bit of soft light. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about the other example. So if that's all about trivialisation yeah. or in the last example, celebration, what about this sort of second section of wartime and costume group solidarity? Yeah, because I think in some ways this is possibly the most important at a time of conflict, but also on the face of it, the most surprising, because this is going on really at the fighting front. If those examples we've looked at previously are very much at the home front, so it's civilians, obviously with the exception of Stringer, but away from direct conflict. The role of costume in the context of group solidarity in wartime has been explored by a academic, Alan Rachmaninoff, and he's particularly looked at the cross-dressing performances of male prisoners of war during the um, First World War. And I think his research into cross-dressing during the First World War particularly is interesting because it links to what we've said in um, other episodes at the beginning of this one about world-building, because he says that cross-dressing for these men was a way of creating a safe space to express anxieties about their situation. And I think this is crucial because a lot of the case studies that Rachmaninoff looks at are prisoners of war. So he argues that in some instances, the motivation for men to cross-dress, and he is almost invariably focusing on men mm -hmm. um, cross-dressing rather than women, um, although, of course, they could and did. He argues that it is a response that these men are dressing up as women to cope with, to come to terms with the shameful situation of them being captured. Mm -hmm. So them cross-dressing, in a sense, he refers to this as an effacement ritual. Right. Um, in a sense, they're dressing as women to overcome the shame of being captured as men, because men are the heroes, of course, of aren't course. they? They are the fighters. They shouldn't be captured. So it's as if they've lost their masculinity once and then again. In e exactly the, okay. that, exactly that. He also says, and I think this is an, another point that historians are increasingly aware of, by dressing in costume, it's a way of sort of mitigating, it's a way of overcoming the boredom of mm. conflict. And I think certainly something that was a concern, particularly among the sort of high command or of the Navy and also the army, was what do you do with lots of men who are obviously expecting to fight with the risk of extreme injury and death, deprived of any intimate relations, mm. but also 
knowing all of this, dwelling on all of this, but actually spending a long time of the conflict not actually involved in fighting. And there was a concern, particularly, that this might encourage homosexuality or homosexual acts between men. So you needed something, a means by which a vehicle that would enable the male soldiers to vent some of their frustrations, some of their sexual frustrations, but do it in a way that would not necessarily inhibit their ability to fight. And a good way of doing this was to have theatre production companies. Mm-hmm. And it is, for me at least, reading Rachmaninoff's research, a striking statistic. If we just focus on the First World War, it's been estimated that 80% of soldiers' divisions that served on the Western and Eastern fronts had a theatrical unit attached to them. Wow. And often this would involve, not, I suppose, dissimilar to what's going on, as you said, Lucy, at Bletchley Park, of you know, I imagine a sort of dressing up box in a sense, Mm -hmm. and of an evening, the men having possibly stock roles or having, you know, a little bit of rehearsals when they've got downtime, putting on the glad rags and entertaining one another to forget the horrors of their situation. And so that was actively encouraged, clearly, with those numbers. It must have been very much part of the institution of war, if you like, although it seems so bonkers to think about that, given that it's such a light-hearted response. And I think why, as an officer, you would sanction that, why you would allow Mm. your men to dress in this way and sort of cavort, is because it is a way of, particularly in the First World War, where you've got conscription, it's overcoming class divides and social tensions possibly, providing a sense or promoting a sense of cohesion, sort of Mm -hmm. a fighting unit. But also, I think, as, as we've said previously, by investing time in your costume and working together to construct it. Mm. There are descriptions of men fashioning sort of armour out of biscuit tins. Right. So if you think about, you know, the deconstruction of a biscuit tin, however one goes about doing that, it's sort of a, a level beyond me. But Fires. I'll take your word for it. Yeah, I, I, I don't know where I'd start. I'd give that a word. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, that does obviously, I think, require a certain amount of sort of camaraderie and group work. Yeah. Let, let's tackle the biscuit tin together. And not many trivialise, but it is a way that I think promotes cohesion. And so as an army officer, although you might think this is a little bit untoward, we wouldn't sanction this, you know, ordinarily under the circumstances they do. I think perhaps naively, when we first discussed together the idea of this as a potential subject... Mm. I naively thought we'd be talking about fancy dress in wartime as a pure act of escapism and, you know, numerous examples of escapism. But what's been really interesting for me is this sort of the world building side and and the sort of shocked, I'm, I'm shocked to learn about some of the other examples of costume in war. So when we're thinking about these soldiers, these prisoners of war engaging in acts of cross-dressing, essentially we are talking about men wearing costumes that make them look like women. So we'll show you various images on our Instagram feed. And a number of these were also featured at a recent exhibition called Undercover, A Secret History of Cross-Dressing at the Photographer's Gallery here in London. And these sequence of images show soldiers with enlarged chest to replicate breasts. Some of them have lipstick on, so big pouting lips, or they've applied rouge to their cheeks to create ostensibly a more feminine appearance. But you do have other examples of men dressing in skirts or sort of makeshift 
dresses as well. So really quite striking when you amazing are, images. I'd never seen them before. No, I mean, really amazing. What makes them more striking for me, at least, is that the way the men are arrayed, the way that they're sitting in these rows facing frontally to the camera. That's almost how you would picture them in their different divisions of and course. sort of battalions yeah, as so soldiers in uniform. Of that. Yeah. yeah, so you've got that sort of martial order. As I said, you can see this on the Instagram feed. You've got one soldier wearing a frilled skirt. You've got a, another example where you seem to have an Adam and Eve type setup, where one of the men is wearing a makeshift fig leaf <laughs> over his nether regions. And can you contextualise it a bit for us? Why is this happening in that moment, in that set of circumstances? Because it seems such an unusual thing to be doing in a moment of actual horror. I think these men are doing it, as far as Mamimov suggests, is because on one level, the men perceive themselves already to have failed. They failed in their duties as a man, as a soldier, because they've been captured. So he describes this as a effacement ritual. So essentially, the men are dressing as women to help them process, I suppose, the trauma of having failed as a man. So if we're dressing as a woman, we're almost, I suppose, engaging in some damage limitation. I see. Okay. They're taking on a new persona where captivity, possibly elements of public humiliation meted out by their captors. So there's nothing here that's about celebratory. This isn't about having a good time. This is the opposite of that. Absolutely. It's about distracting themselves from the reality of their situation. Right. Okay. And doing it in a way that doesn't threaten their notions of, of, of manhood, their masculinities, and possibly also that doesn't bring shame on the rest of their fighting unit. It seems, looking at those photographs, there's a lot of effort that's gone into that. There's yeah. wigs, there's, you know, it's a, it's a big production number again. What, oh, I don't understand how that would be something that would be permitted in that environment where they are prisoners. Mm. Um, I think their captors allow it, partly because you know, they have been detained, so they are of no threat right. to the enemy. But also I think there is a understanding, I think, between different soldiers. We see this in many accounts during the First World War, that soldiers from the Germans or the Austrians fighting the British, the French, um, and obviously um, other combatants as well, recognise almost the futility of this conflict. So the reality, yes, is that these men have been captured, but I think there is also a almost a basic humanity that transcends the war. And I think their captors, I mean, they must have sanctioned this yeah. form of behaviour in terms of getting the resources to dress up. It's unlikely that the soldiers would have that of themselves. Yeah. So I think their captors have essentially acquiesced. They've mm-hmm. allowed this freedom to the people that they have incarcerated. And don't forget what we've already said, a lot of fighting um, groups, divisions, would have a theatrical group as part of their contingent. So they probably do have costumes Mm -hmm. that can be lent or resources that can be used by their captors. And I think that's probably what we have to imagine happening here. And the idea of the cross-dressing and exploration of gender, it's interesting, isn't it, in wartime? Because in or war, there is already more gender fluidity. The roles that were perhaps once clearly defined become looser in wartime. You know, we have the land girls at home. Sure. I always think it's a wonderful moment in history for women where there is a great freedom suddenly and yeah. being able to do jobs, you know, out in the land or and, you know, to be a mechanic where you would never have been allowed that sort of sense of freedom before, as well as knowing that you were doing something incredibly useful. So we know that 
often in, in times of conflict, gender roles are more fluid. And that's really interesting, isn't it? But it's not just a 20th century phenomenon, is it? That we've got other examples of that. I think you're absolutely right. There are examples, particularly from the 17th and 19th century, that I think is reasonably um, well known. So in the 17th century, we have accounts of women dressing as soldiers. So this is between 1642 and 1646. And concerns then, as you said, with this time of social unease, women by dressing as male soldiers, transgressing gendered Mm -hmm. boundaries and sort of um, running amok. But specifically, the example that I thought might be a little bit more interesting is from the, or a couple from the American Civil War during the 19th century, so from 1861 to 1865. And the first example is of a Francis Clayton um, (laughs) who who enlists in the war as Jack Williams. And she does this, as far as the evidence and and records tell us, to fight alongside her husband. And it should be said that we don't have, either for the 17th century or the 19th century, many records of women dressing as men, largely because, of course, if we did have the records, their dressing up has been unsuccessful. So we only have a sort of snapshots. But Francis is quite a, I think as far as one can tell, an extraordinary character because she serves in the Missouri Artillery and Cavalry Corps, which seems pretty hard on, artillery and (laughs) cavalry. That, to me, I'm slightly scared. But she serves in no fewer than 17 battles. Wow. Before somebody clocks on that she is female and is then discharged. That's remarkable. I think it is. At that time. My goodness. So she was convincing... And brave. I think very brave. Really brave. And we've got a couple of photographs of Which Francis we will show Clayton. you on our Instagram feed. And what's interesting is that contemporaries did remark that, and possibly the reason she wasn't discovered for several months, that she, in her appearance she was quite tall. Mm-hmm. Her facial features were described as being quite masculine. Apparently... And to what extent this was part of the myth that develops later. But apparently she liked, so say, masculine activities. Like war. I mean, (laughs) clearly. I think think at that time to take on and remain alive through 17 battles. So what happened when, when she was discovered... What happened next? Do we? How much do we know about that? We, we don't know a great deal. Um, she is discharged and, and appears to go back home. But those images, those photographs that we do have, are clearly posed. So there's clearly an mm. element of popular interest and almost her becoming something of a sort of 15-minute celebrity. But it seems such a heroic thing to yeah. do against all the odds. But it wouldn't have been seen as that at the time. It would have been seen as Trixie or... I think in the case criminal. of Frances Clayton, there is a sense of... She has done something disreputable, hence obviously the discharge. But the fact that the photos exist, I think there's almost a sort of sense, and you know, her war record, as it were, right. were 17 battles. I think there is a sense of grudging respect. Okay. Um, but also, as I said, she was maybe different because contemporaries did remark upon her as being masculine-esque in appearance and manner. I mean, stories of her chewing tobacco, for example. So that may have made it easier for people to accept her dressing as a soldier. In another example, though, that transition was a little bit less successful. So Lizzie Hoffman was a black woman who fought 
in the US Colored Infantry Division. She serves actually for two years, so remarkably wow. long stretch of time. But interestingly, her war record, and we don't have any photographs of her, or at least none that I'm aware of, she's arrested, she is then charged and is then forced to wear a dress. So almost in a sense, you know, Gosh. you've transgressed by wearing male attire. You've assumed a role that is not yours because of your sex. So we're going to put you in a dress to make that point. And it's interesting, isn't it, taking something, a, a garment, and using it as a punishment exactly in that, that example? Yeah. Yeah, which is startling, actually, to think about that. After such, you know, impressive... I mean, she wasn't sort of, you know asking about and not contributing. Like exactly. That, it feels like she wasn't in, you know, why why need that be punished? Well, I think also because, I mean, this idea that she's serving in the coloured infantry division, she's already being segregated, yeah. being marginalised because of her skin colour. Then the fact that she is a woman transgressing as they mm. saw it at the time as a man. So I think in that sense, her story is, although there's more against her in that story yeah. or that episode than, say, for example, Frances Clayton, yeah. who was a Caucasian lady. But it is interesting in, in an academic book that's been written about the women who served during the American Civil War. So this is by two academics, Diane Blanton and Lauren Cook Wilk. The title of the book is called They Fought Like Demons, <laughs> which I'm guessing is a sort of contemporary quotation. So right. again, this idea that those women who are fighting are, in a sense, more than women. They're more like men. Yeah. So that's almost how contemporaries are rationalising this. Oh, well, they weren't very womanly anyway. Right. Um, that's how I think almost they can overcome the heroic deeds of these women. By, in some and ways. indeed, you know, for the majority of fighting men, not be threatened by the idea yeah. that a female could take on that role and be as good as it, it you know, and, and to sort of hold their own. That, that mm. at the time, would have been a quite threatening probably even now would be, is, is considered, you know, a, a difficult thing. For, I think so, it, It's yeah. a slightly threatening of one's own sense of masculinity, perhaps. I think that's definitely right. Or at least macho-ness, mm. I don't know. We should say that when we're talking about things like forced to wear a dress, we recognise that we're not talking about fancy dress in the same obvious way that we have been in other episodes. So this isn't about school plays or papier-mâché. This is much more about how clothes as sartorial extremes or costume impact a scenario like this or, or how they can be used as vehicles in times of crisis. Yeah. And so we recognise that we're a long way from the sort of astronaut tinfoil costume <laughs> in this episode, although we will return to it. I think that for me, what's been really interesting listening to all of this is the idea that kind of within atrocity, there is a sort of celebratory... Mm. Thing. Even in those most recent examples, if you look at the picture of Frances Clayton, I think she looks like a powerhouse of, yeah. you know, it's a hugely dignified, in, in, it importantly really is, yeah. in both photographs. Yes, so we have yeah. a photograph of her in uniform and we also have a photograph of her in contemporary dress at the time. So the full, enormous dress she's wearing, corseted, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm. Importantly, I think if you look at those pictures, she looks the same level of impressive mm. and intimidating and strong in both those pictures. And that yeah. feels like a very powerful 
two very powerful images. There's another thing that's been running through my head, which is how atrocity becomes nostalgia very quickly, actually. Mm. And if you think about now how, you know, the land girls or how we might do, uh, there's lots of examples of vintage festivals and nostalgia-based activities that we do now where, you know, people are dressed in, you know, costumes, particularly from World War I and World War II, Mm. that feel very... I mean, I wonder if if we hadn't won, it might be different. It might have less of a of attraction today, but yeah. it definitely feels like there is a relationship between, you know, when something goes from being a fight to being a celebration. Yeah. And there's not much, you know, in terms of the clothes that are worn, there's not much, there's a continuity there that is interesting. I think that's true. And I think you're right. It, that's largely a, a consequence of in these examples, the British or some of the American examples, the side that they were fighting for prevailing. Mm. And so you can, during the conflict, use these costumes as a galvanizing mechanism. After the conflict, you can then use them for celebration and a continued way possibly of, of denigrating your enemy. In our last episode, when we were thinking about bad taste, you mentioned the Osama bin Laden masks. And I suppose there might be a sense that you can continue to wear those because it demonstrates a American triumph mm-hmm. over a enemy. So the repeated sort of motifs, and I suppose if we're thinking about war, just generally the prevalence of wartime motifs in menswear, in womenswear as well, the popularity of, of that, course. it is a way of subtly, but I think no less stridently and clearly, reminding us of what we've achieved, what are our values as a society. And I think fancy dress at wartime, although it might seem trivial in a contemporary context, it is a way of, I think, reminding us of what we have achieved. So superficially facile, frivolous, but actually subconsciously something, I think, quite important. There are links to the things we've mentioned in our show notes and you can see the outfit references on our Instagram page at Dress Fancy Podcast. If you want to get in touch, do message us there. Thank you to Ben Fleetwood-Smythe and Miranda Poutney for reading our extracts to mark our editor and thank you all for listening.